has an Old Testament problem. You see, we know that the Old Testament is good to read, good to study, but we typically will open up the Old Testament and we run into one of three things. We run into either a long list of names and families that don't mean a whole lot to us, and we don't know what to do with, with a bunch of names, or we run into some sort of prophecy which is super hard to understand. I mean, I don't care if you've been to seminary or not. Prophecy can be difficult to wade your way through. And then the other thing that we run into is narrative, like we're, we're going to look at today in Joshua. And we have a hard time with what to do with narrative. And so often what happens is we'll take a, a narrative passage and we'll kind of twist it and, and massage it and maybe turn it into some sort of moralistic lesson. You know, and Joshua chapter 6 is one of those ones that is a huge problem passage, for, especially for preachers. You know, I was talking to my dad this past week. He's a pastor in Arizona. And you know, he said, what are you going to be teaching on this, this Sunday? I said, Joshua 6. Uh, you know, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. And he said, you going to title your sermon, uh, Tearing Down the Walls in Your Life? How to Break Down the Walls in Your Life? I said, yeah, no, I don't think so. And, uh, and so he joked and laughed about it a little bit. But then it got me thinking. And so I, you know, I did a Google search and looked up on uh, the Internet, Sermons in Joshua 6. And on Sermon Central, just on the first page, these were some of the titles and, and themes of sermons on Joshua chapter 6. One of them was the power of a shout. And then the sermon went on to, to talk about how as Christians we need to learn how to shout to God so he would know what we want. If you want no debt in your life and you want health and you want a good life, then you need to learn how to shout. I'm like, what? And then there was one that was conquer the new year. Conquer the new year like Joshua conquered Jericho. Then there was one that in, in everyone's life, there comes a Jericho. An obstacle that you have to overcome. Another sermon was how to overcome obstacles. How to make your walls fall down flat. And another one was becoming a circle maker, praying with excellence. And it went on to talk about how, you know, like they circled Jericho you know, we need to create circles in our life and, and learn how to pray to God. And then I ask myself, there's no, nobody's praying in Joshua 6. How is this a, a chapter or a passage about prayer? How is this about a shouting to God for what you want in your life? How is this an obstacle that we need to overcome? I don't think that any of these things is what the author, Joshua, had in mind when he recorded this event for us. And when God instituted this event. Because this all happens under his direction. This wasn't Israel saying, we have to conquer Jericho. You know, God, help us conquer Jericho. This was God saying to Israel, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to take place. So then, what are we to do with Joshua chapter 6? 
how do we look at this and understand what did it mean to Israel? And then coming forward in history, what does it mean to us? And how does it affect us, change our heart, our thoughts, and then how we act? Let's go ahead and look at it. And, it, and I think it's going to break down into three sections. And first we're going to see the independence of Yahweh. He's going to establish his independence, his centrality, his separation in a sense from the rest of the world. Then we're going to see the faith of Yahweh's people, that there's a requirement for Yahweh's people to have a faith in him. And then last, we'll end the chapter with seeing the salvation of Yahweh. So, let me start in chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. It says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And Yahweh said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram, ram's horns before the Ark of Yahweh. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of Yahweh. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before Yahweh went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of Yahweh following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of Yahweh to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. So you can see here in the, the beginning of this chapter that there's something that kind of takes center stage, that comes to the forefront, and, and that's this Ark of the Covenant, or this Ark of Yahweh. This Ark that is a representation of the physical presence of Yahweh. It's where His presence would come to rest in the Holy of Holies, at this Ark of the Covenant, and it stood as a symbol for the people that Yahweh is with you. Yahweh is amongst you. If you want to approach Yahweh, you approach him at the temple where the ark would end up residing. And so this 
ark is talked about a whole lot at the beginning of this passage. It's repeated over and over and over again. Because God wants the people to focus on the ark. The focus is not going to be on you walking around the city. You know, you walking around the city, Israel, is not some sort of magic thing that happens to cause walls to crumble down. This is not you showing off your might and power to those within Jericho. In fact, those within Jericho are probably looking at Israel thinking, have they lost their minds? They're just walking around. They're not even cheering. They're not excited about this. And then they blow some horns and rest for the rest of the day. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But what God wants to do is he wants to separate the people from conquering Jericho to show them that it's not you, Israel, that are going to be conquering Jericho, but rather it is me. And you can see this right at the very beginning. Verse 1 says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside. You see, the city saw Israel coming, saw them cross the river, and they just closed the city down. Because what's this ragtag bunch of nomads going to do to one of the most formidable cities in the world at this time? I mean, we've got plenty of food. They can hang out there all they want. We have our food here. We can hide within the walls of our city. And we can wait. Other cities are going to hear, and then they're going to come, and they'll conquer Israel, and we'll be fine. So they shut up the city inside and out. Nobody was getting out. Nobody was getting in. And that included everybody within Israel. And understand, Israel was not this world power military-wise. You know, they didn't have the ability and the technology to start a siege war with Jericho, to build ramps to get over the walls, or, or to just starve them out. There was nothing that they could do to this city. And he goes on, and in verse 2, Yahweh makes it very clear right from the beginning. He says to Joshua, See, Joshua, you see the city of Jericho? Given it into your hands. I have given it to you. Joshua had to be sitting there going, Okay, I'm going to trust him. He's followed through on everything else he said, even though the city's still sitting there, still standing there. I'm going to have faith, and I'm going to trust that what you say is right, Yahweh. It's not Israel that's going to conquer Jericho. It's not Joshua that's going to tear down the walls. But rather, it's Yahweh by himself. On top of that, he says, I'm going to give into your hands the king and the mighty men of valor. Even once the walls come down, Israel kind of acts like a, as a janitor, and they go in and clean up at the end of this chapter. But even in that, God hands the people over to Israel. And so then he tells them to march around the city. And having them march around the city, again, was not doing anything to the city. This was not God laying out a plan of, here's how we're going to conquer cities, Israel. This is our plan. We're going to show up at every city. We're going to spend a week walking around it until the walls fall down. This is a singular event. This is not normative. 
But God wants the people to go around this city and to see the walls of this city, to see the military people on top of the walls looking out at Israel. He wants them to firmly understand that there is no way possible for them to conquer this city in and of themselves. On top of that, he focuses their attention on the ark. He's got a guard going in front of it, priests going in front of it. He's got horns coming behind it and the people. And everybody is focused on the ark going around the city. And you can see it later on where it says in verse 11, so he caused the ark of Yahweh to circle the city. It doesn't say he caused the nation of Israel to circle around the city. He caused the people in the ark to go around the city. Rather, it says he caused the ark to go around the city. He wanted the people in the city also to see this ark of the covenant, this presence of Yahweh going around their city. He's making it known to Israel that this is of my hand and of my doing. And he's making it known to Jericho, this is of Yahweh's hand that you are going to be conquered. And Jericho knew who Yahweh was. If you remember back to the story of Rahab, Rahab says, we've heard all about you, Israel. We know of your God, Yahweh. They even know his name. They said, we heard what happened in Egypt and how you, your God conquered Pharaoh's army. We, we heard how you've come through the desert and you've conquered people in the desert. They knew who Yahweh was. And now here it is, this item, the ark, this, this representation of Yahweh circling their city. So... God firmly establishes right at the beginning that this is not about Israel. This is about me, and this is about your focus on me and my leadership to you as a people and my guiding you as a people. So then, what does he demand of the people? And it would be easy to say obedience. And you know, a lot of people look at this and say, you know, we need to obey even when God gives us strange instructions. We need to obey even when God wants us to do something and we don't fully understand it. And there's truth to that. But I don't think that obedience is the, the first and foremost issue. I think there's something more foundational that comes before obedience. And I would say that that's faith. So God's established Israel. You want to conquer this city? Do you want this city to be given into your hands? What I require is for you to have faith in me. So he goes on in verse 12. Let's look at what he says. It says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of Yahweh. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns, before the ark of Yahweh, walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of Yahweh, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once, returned to the camp. And so they did for six days. 
On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day, marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for Yahweh has given you the city. So God is asking them to have faith in, the, in him. His requirement is that have faith that I'm going to fulfill my promise to you. I made a promise to your father Abraham, and that promise said that I was going to give you land, that I was going to give you offspring, and that I was going to give you blessing. And then through that blessing, it was going to bless the entire world. And so here he is starting the fulfillment of that promise that he had made to Abram by bringing them into the land and starting to conquer the land. And he's asking them, do you have faith that I'm going to fulfill my promise? Do you have faith that I'm going to follow through and give you the blessings that I said I would? And if you have any doubt, if you think, ah, you might be stretching it, you know, are you sure about that? Is it really faith? Hebrews 11.30. The author of Hebrews, looking at this chapter, his lesson coming out of that is, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. See, the author of Hebrews orders it right. They had faith, and faith is what God desired. Faith is what he was trying to teach them. Faith is what he wanted. They had faith, and out of that faith flowed obedience. You see, the obedience by itself is no good. Israel got really good at obedience without faith, right? Where they would follow through on all the sacrifices and all the rules and all the laws, and God finally gets fed up and he says, I don't want your sacrifices, your burnt offering. It's an offense to me. I want your hearts. I want your hearts to have faith in me. And so it's out of that foundation of faith that the obedience flows. For us, it's a very similar thing. We're not given the task to walk around a city. And you might say, you know, well, how do I know what God wants me to do in my life? You know, it was easy for Israel. You know, he told them, walk around the city, do this, this many times on this day, and then I'll do this for you. I'll make the walls fall down. That would be so much easier. I mean, really? Would it be so much easier? Think about if you were in Israel's place. You're walking around this city. The walls are going to fall down, he said. Never seen this happen before in my life. You know, but they had faith, and so they did it. Today, we say we don't have that kind of detailed instruction in our lives. You know, we get kind of broad you know, instructions. Don't, don't lie, don't cheat, don't murder, don't commit adultery, you know, things like that. It, it, you know, and then we have to figure out, how does that work out in my life? You know, it, the thing is, every time you face a situation where you know... This is sinful. God's told me, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Yet here I am at work, and if I, if I don't 
bend the truth a little bit, I may end up losing a client, or I may end up losing this contract, or I may end up getting in trouble and getting fired. You know, and, and God wants to provide for me, and God wants me, you know, good things in my life. So it's not a bad lie, it's just a small lie, and I'm just bending the truth. Yeah? No, he's given you instructions. You've come to a, a place where you have this sin, you know, and are you going to follow through on that sin that your flesh your, your desires, or are you going to have faith that God's will, God's instructions, God's commands are what's right for your life? In marriage, you know, Kelly and I were traveling recently and we sat next to this young man on the airplane and we were talking to him and we told him we've been married for 31 years. And he was shocked. 31 years? It was like he wasn't even that old. You know, he couldn't even think of that many years. He said, how would you do that? How do you stay married that long? And I don't have like a good, you know, like answer for that short of, well, you know, I'm a believer. I have faith in Christ. And because I have faith in him, then I seek to follow God's will. And God says that his will is that once you're married, you don't divorce. So then whenever Kelly and I, you know, hit a troubled patch or a difficult time, you know, I say, okay, do I take the easy way and I just leave the relationship? Or do I say, no, I have faith that God knows what's right, God knows what's best, so this isn't even an option. So I have to figure out how to make the relationship work right. I need to see how can I serve my wife, how can I love my wife, how can I sacrifice for her, how can I exhibit the love of Christ towards her. That's how you stay married for 31 years. It's a, not a matter of, you know, good marriage counseling and all these other things, but rather it's saying, I have faith that sits as my foundation, which then drives me to obedience. And to be obedient, I need to treat my wife appropriately, like Christ treats the church. I need to love her and care for her. And it's for life. So, we struggle at times, but we only struggle because we would rather do the sin at times. It's easier to do the sin sometimes. But we face the same decision that Israel had to make. We're going to march around the city. This is what God told us to do. This is instructions to us. We'll do it because we have faith. So then we see back in Hebrews again, the author continues... And he says in verse 31, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And so we see the same thing with Rahab. It's not just true of Israel. Foundation of faith leads to obedience. A foundation of faith with Rahab, faith in this God called Yahweh that she hadn't even met yet, but she has faith in this Yahweh leads her to obedience in protecting the spies. Which then leads to the close of this chapter. Verse 17. He says, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to Yahweh for destruction. 
we go, well, this is a little uncomfortable. You know, this is one of those other Old Testament problems is we run into passages that seem a little off, or seem like, ah, man, is this really right? Look what he says. Verse 18, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. So when you go into the city, I've set apart this city for destruction, everything in it for destruction, except for a couple of things. And don't take anything else. Because if you do, then the destruction I'm bringing to Jericho, I am going to bring to you. He says in verse 19, But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to Yahweh, and they shall go into the treasury of Yahweh. So all these precious metals, you're going to take them, not for yourself, Israel, because remember, Israel, you didn't conquer Jericho. I, Yahweh, cancer, uh, conquered Jericho, so I get the spoils. I get the gold, I get the silver, I get the bronze, and I get the iron. These are set apart for me. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the walls fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Yeah, the Geneva Convention would have a heyday with this, right? I mean, wait, Joshua, this is not appropriate for the rules of war, you know? I mean, you capture it, you're killing all the men and the women and the old and the, the young. And the young includes children and infants. This is a hard thing for us to think about, right? that he goes in and essentially wipes this city off the map. Literally. He goes on. Verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of Yahweh. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at the time, saying, Cursed before Yahweh be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So Yahweh was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. And so we have this closing 
part of the narrative, and it's interwoven with this destruction and judgment and the redemption or salvation of Rahab. And it goes back and forth between the two. You know, verse 17. You know, you're going to destroy the city except for Rahab. You know, you're going to set everything to destruction except for the, the family. And then you're going to wipe everything out except for Rahab, who's going to live in our nation even this day. And so he weaves back and forth. And we have a hard time with this you know, because we don't view the city of Jericho and the people that lived in the promised land at this time in the right way. You know, we have this idea of, you know, it's like America. You know, maybe even like quasi-Bible Belt America. And there's some good people and, you know, and there's some bad people, but they're not really bad people. They're just mostly bad but this is not how God sees it. And in fact, it's interesting, but he addresses this very thing all the way back when he gives his covenant to Abram. If we go back and we look in Genesis 15, Genesis 15, verse 12, says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then Yahweh said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. We've already seen this. This is Israel in, in, enslaved in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. We saw that. He brings judgment on Pharaoh, wipes his army out. And they come out of Egypt with gold and silver and all sorts of good possessions. Verse 15, he says, As for yourself, you shall go out to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And then verse 16 of chapter 15, And they... Your people, your offspring, this nation I'm going to create, they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Over 440 years before Jericho falls, God's already looking at the Amorites and those that live in the promised land as rebellious against him, as sinful against him, having rejected him, rejected his rule. And he says, I'm going to bring judgment upon them. But not yet. I'm going to give it 440-something years to give them over to exactly what they want. So that there can be no doubt, no question in the future that these people deserved judgment. And so we look back through history, and we just think about them in the same sense of we think about our neighborhood today. And it was not like that. Jericho and the Promised Land almost wholesale rejected God and turned against him. Deuteronomy 
Deuteronomy 18, verse 12. Actually, Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. We'll start there. So he's already told Abram, I'm going to judge the people in the promised land. Not yet. I'm going to give them 440 years. Let them build their sin up into a fullness, in a sense. Then, talking to Moses, here in Deuteronomy 18, he says, when you come into the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh. And because of these abominations, Yahweh your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before Yahweh your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners, but as for you, Yahweh your God has not allowed you to do this. So he tells Moses, like, Moses, understand, I'm going to send you into the promised land. You're going to drive the people out. You're going to displace them. You're going to take their cities. You're going to take their houses. You're going to destroy these people. And here's why. Because they have become an abomination to me. They're sacrificing their children, their sons and their daughters. They burn them so they can tell the future, so they can try and know what my will is, not even recognizing it as my will. And then you say, well, wait a minute. You know, is it fair? I mean, they didn't have, you know, gospel preachers. They didn't have Bible tracts. They didn't, you know, how are these people in this foreign land supposed to know? There's a couple of ways. They know just through general revelation or through, you know, through the world that there's a creator, that somebody has made this. And they can choose one of two things. Who created this? How can I find out about him? Or they can reject him and they'll start to, to worship the creature, the one that was created. They'll start to worship the animals. They'll start to worship multiple unknown gods. They'll reject the creator. The other way is Israel is tromping around the land. And Rahab, when they meet Rahab, she says, yeah, we all know who you are. Everybody has heard about you. You know, we, we know that your God's name is Yahweh. We know what he did to Pharaoh. We know what he did to Pharaoh's army. We know what he's done for you for the past 40 years in the wilderness. We know about you. God made himself known, not just to Israel, but to the entire world. The world knew about Yahweh. They knew about Israel they chose to reject him. They chose not to follow him. Except for Rahab. Here's Rahab. She says, show me. You know, how do I find salvation? You know, and I'm sure she was expecting some sort of ceremony, some sort of sacrifice, some sort of whatever, like all the other religions in the world. And yet, what gains her entry what gets her salvation is simply her foundation of faith, her belief in Yahweh, which then works itself out in her obedience by saving Yahweh's people.
So what was the author of Joshua trying to teach? He's trying to teach the same thing that Yahweh was trying to teach to Israel. Israel, understand that I am your God. I am your creator. I am your sovereign. I'm your king. I am the one and only person, God, that you follow. Me alone. I'm the one that has power. I'm the one that has authority, that has rule. I'm the one that can bring salvation. I'm the one that can bring judgment and destruction. Those are your two options, Israel. You can choose salvation through faith in me, or you can choose judgment that leads to destruction. And so Joshua narrows in on that. It shows that centrality, that separateness of God. It shows the, the faith of Israel and their obedience because of their faith in marching around the city. And then he shows the salvation of Rahab because of her faith in this Yahweh. And the New Testament authors look back and pick up on that idea and understand, yeah, Joshua 6 is showing us that we need to have faith in God. And it doesn't matter what, what type of situation that we're going through. Good times and bad times. Famine and plenty. We have faith that God knows what he's doing. And that no matter how out of control or how crazy it might be, that God knows what's best. And it may not turn out the way that we would like, the way that we've designed. I mean, I don't think that Paul had the design for his ministry, his career, to, to end up in a jail, rejected by everyone, all alone, with not even a cloak to cover himself. You know, that's the end of his ministry. He's in a jail cell. I mean, that's not what we would consider the end of a successful ministry. You know? Yet, we know that that's not the case. That, you know, there may not be another Christian you know, that had as much of an impact as Paul did. Paul's ministry was not only successful in his time, but continues to be successful. As Paul, long dead at this point, still continues to lead people to Christ through the word that God gave him. So it's not our circumstances that affect our faith, but rather it's just our faith that we've been given that option. Are you going to believe and the one that created this world? Are you going to believe in the one that's the sovereign ruler of this world? Are you going to believe in Yahweh who brought Israel out of Egypt, across the wilderness, across the Jordan, and tore down the walls of Jericho for them? It's the same God that we worship today. And in fact, you know, Jesus is not absent from this picture. You go back to, to chapter 5 of Joshua, and he's right before this. He's the one that leads them into war. You know, and, and often you'll hear, you know, well, the God of the Old Testament isn't the God of Jesus. You know, that's so far from the truth. Because here's Jesus in chapter 5, verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I 
and the commander of the army of Yahweh. Now I have come. And Joshua fell to his face, to face the earth, and worshipped. And he said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, Take up your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. This is not just an angel, because angels don't accept worship. Angels don't make ground holy. You know, they, just by their very presence, they don't bring holiness to you. This can only be an incarnation of Yahweh. And we understand it to be a pre-incarnation of Jesus Christ. So here's Jesus Christ with a sword ready to go conquer the promised land with the people. He says, Joshua asks him, are you for us? Are you against us? He says, no, neither. You guys are with me. I'm going to bring destruction and judgment to this land. And you're going to follow along with me. So Jesus, here, we see him bringing both judgment to the land, but also redemption and salvation. This is the same choice we have today. You know, and, and you have to ask yourself, what's my view? You know, do I view this God of Joshua, the God of Hebrews, that sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be that salvation, that savior for us, to finally fulfill that promise of blessing to Abraham? You know, if you think, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you offspring, and I'm going to give you blessing, and then through that, I'm going to bless the rest of the world. We see an inkling of it, where there's a blessing to Rahab. But now, we see that fountain overflowing. And a blessing to the entire world, as, as his gospel goes out. It changes our lives. I mean, almost every single one of us is sitting here as a recipient of that blessing of the promise to Abram. So, are you going to have faith? Will your faith lead to obedience?